Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 21. We'll begin in verse 4 here in just a moment. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark. I get the privilege of being one of the ministers here, and uh, we're glad you're here and uh, grateful for your worship of Jesus and encouraged that you'd worship him with us. <clears throat> we're completing a three-year series through the Gospels in this next two weeks, and uh, we'll be in John chapter 21. And here's my concern about this text. We know where we've been. Jesus has just administrated through his life and ministry the most powerful week in the history of mankind. It changed everything. From his triumphal entry into the city on Sunday to his crucifixion at the end of the week to his resurrection, we know that he set right everything that we had broken, that he had demonstrated all the power we need to enter into his kingdom and his kingdom beginning by exploding in this world with love and truth. We know that Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room. He appeared to Mary at the tomb. And last week we took one of those occurrences and we looked at his conversation with two men as they went from Jerusalem to their town of Emmaus and how he walked with them that the scriptures, all the prophets, were pointing toward what Jesus was doing, that all of them, Christologically, all about Jesus, the Old Testament was pointing us toward what God is doing, what we have done, and how God would set it straight in Jesus. And we're at this moment in time where we're at one of those moments at the end of Jesus' ministry. Now, for me, the benefit of the last three years of being able to study and focus completely on the Gospels for Sunday mornings is I've begun to see parts of the scriptures that I used to preach independent of a timeline, and now I'm seeing, oh, because that happened, Jesus did this, and it just has greater clarity for me. And I hope today we can find some of that for you too. Because when we look at this text, I'm assuming most of us know the story, and there's two ways to look at the story. It's Jesus and Peter having an interaction after Peter's failure. And instead of just looking at what Peter was feeling, I really want to focus our attention on what Jesus is saying and doing, and even, if we may, what Jesus is not doing. Because at the end of this, I want your heart to be filled. If you want the takeaway for today, I want you to realize Jesus is giving you the opportunity of a lifetime if you'll take it. But you can't just see yourself, you have to see him. Now, the way I'd like to pose this is, have you ever had a moment when you've seen someone parent or coach or teach or lead in such a way, it was so contrary to how you would have done it, or it's so unique to the moment that you stopped and all you could do is basically tip your cap and go, well done. So I had one of these a couple weeks ago. I had, was running some errands in town. And I went down to 15th Street Walmart, which is hectic all the time. And I walked in there to get a couple of things because I was in that end of town. And I saw this lady walking through the store with these two children. They were cute as can be. And I knew that she was a grandma because she could not have a sentence where she was not calling herself grandma. And as she was talking to her grandchildren, a proud moment for her to take them into town. She's like, well, grandma needs to run this and grandma needs to do this and, and you need to stay with grandma. So I was clear she was grandma. Well, one of the kids was physically cute, but not so much in temperament. This kid was pitching a fit. He wanted some toy. Grandma wanted to be the nice, sweet grandma so she couldn't just drill the kid and he needed drilled. I was going to volunteer. I'm like, I can help you. But she wasn't interested. This kid was like, he wasn't just asking for something. He was whining and he was throwing himself in the ground. And here she's trying to hold his hand and he did that thing where he dropped to the ground and made her drag him. And I was the whole time going, I'm going to put the medicine down and help the lady. And then she did the most amazing thing. It was one of those moments that I, all I could do was tip my cap. She let go of his hand. 
She let go of the granddaughter's hand. She flopped herself on the ground, started kicking her feet, slapping her hands, and squealing. And that little boy stopped, walked over, God is my witness, walked over, put his hands on her cheeks, and said, please stop. And I walked by her and looked at her, and I said, nicely done. And she winked at me, and I thought, I love her. And I'm thinking, that was amazing. I wouldn't have handled it that way, but she handled it perfectly. Little boy got up, took grandma's hand. They went to the checkout ahead of me. I was like, bravo, lady. I've seen coaches coach and teach a technique that I have kept in my memory. Like, if I ever get a chance to coach, I'm going to use that technique because that was brilliant. It was timely in the context. The student got it. It wasn't screaming and yelling and obscenities. It wasn't telling them they're worthless. It was showing them what to do and fixing it. I want you to see today, if we pay attention to John 21, you're going to see Jesus do something so contrary to our nature and so perfect to his that I hope at least at the end of this morning, you'll tip your cap to Jesus and go, he's really good at this discipling thing. And if he's that good with Peter, what could he be with you and me? Just so smooth. We're going to look in John 21, verse 4. I'm going to be reading this morning distinctly from the contemporary English version. It's one that I enjoy reading when I'm just sitting down to read a text and get an idea of the, of the flow of it. And so it be, might be a little different than the NIV we normally use around here. or Some of you use ESV. So just go with it because it is a good translation. It's just in more modern language and structure. So let's begin. Verse 4. <clears throat> but when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of your boat, and you will, you will find a catch. They cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And John said to Peter, It is the Lord. Peter put on the outer garment on and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread, verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast, verse 14. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Peter and Jesus are going to have a moment. They haven't had a real moment, a personal moment, a one-on-one -on -one moment since that night. That night that Peter denied him three times that Peter not only said he didn't know Jesus, he said he had nothing to do with Jesus, and he used obscene language to separate himself so that nobody would believe. Anybody around Jesus would talk like that. And this is the moment. And here's the good news. I'm going to tell you the good news of the story this morning. Jesus doesn't ignore our past. He deals with it. See, for some of us, we think that Jesus is just going to act like it didn't happen. No, no. God's holiness can't act like it didn't happen. But the way he treats it is like that lady in the 15th Street Walmart. It was so unusual that we're all like, whoa, that was a good way to handle that. Jesus doesn't act like we didn't sin. He deals with the fact that we did. And part of the reason many of us aren't growing in our discipleship, if we're honest with our own soul, is we won't deal with what we've done. We just want to act like we didn't do it. Or we don't want it to count, at least. And we're going to learn today that Jesus deals with our sin, but he does it in the most beautiful, smooth way that it causes us to love him. Why does this story matter for us? 
Well, you can turn into if you want. I'm just going to paraphrase it. I'm going to tell you the story, but I'm going to encourage you to write down Luke chapter 5 if you're taking notes to be a passage that you might study this week and realize Luke 5 and John 21 are very parallel stories in, regarding Peter and Jesus. You see, in Luke chapter 5, they had been fishing all night. Now, we know based on the customs that they would fish sometime between 2 and 3 in the morning till about sunrise when the fish would go into the, the deep. And they would catch the fish as they came into the shallows and they would drop their nets and they would bring them in. And this particular morning in Luke chapter 5, Jesus appears on the beach and he says, can I use your boat while they were cleaning their nets? And Jesus pushed the boat out and he used the natural amphitheater of the beach and he spoke to the crowd. And then he says, cast the boat further out and drop your nets on the right side of the boat. And they corrected Jesus. They said, technically, Jesus, we don't do that because the fish have gone deep and we just cleaned our nets. We got all the shells and garbage and seaweed off them. We're drying our nets so that tomorrow we can go out in the middle or in the early, early, early morning and we can fish. And Jesus said, cast your nets on the right side. And they did. And they had such a haul of fish that the boat began to sink. And Peter does one of the most amazing things. It's counterintuitive. Peter realizing what Jesus just did against all common sense and realized that Jesus was controlling this, Peter falls on his knees and he says, I am a sinner, get away from me. Not like you're bad, but I'm bad. He falls down and he confesses that he's a sinner. And in that moment, something amazing happens. Jesus says these words, don't be afraid. Of what? That you're a sinner. You see, in American church, we all will kind of nod when the preacher says we're all sinners, right? We're like, yeah, yeah, not as bad as that guy. No, we can't do that. What Peter realizes in the presence of God's holiness and realizing that Jesus was God, he fell down and he called out the fact that he was a sinner, and that begins a path of discipleship. When you and I can admit what we have done and not ignore it and let Jesus deal with it, he will deal with it to the betterment of our souls. And so you have a moment where he declares, I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. It's by that confession that our fear falls because we know who we're dealing with. Don't be afraid. Very interesting. And then he... So we have this moment where Luke 5 is being relived. What's happened? Guys, catch any fish? No. Why don't you cast your nets out on the side of the boat? And they're like, huh, that reminds me of a moment. And then they realize, because they don't know it's Jesus, they do. They catch the fish. Peter dives in the water, heads toward the, the boat. And if you read the language correctly, I think you, John's recording this, by the way, notice that. John records, Peter jumped in and started swimming, and we pulled the boat to the shore and beat him. <laughs> Peter being Peter. He comes out of the water impetuously, and he sees Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, I love this. Do you guys have any fish? And what do they respond? No. And what does Jesus have? He has fish already on the grill being cooked. He's good. The professional fisherman couldn't get fish. Jesus already had his. And he says, you guys want something to eat? And they're like, yeah, and they're sitting down there. And it says something distinct here in John, John 18, 18. I want you to notice something. This is John telling the story of Peter's denial. John says it was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Now, what's interesting about that is you just see the word fire. But in the original language, it's a charcoal fire. Uh, now, I know if you're under 25, you probably maybe have never cooked anything over charcoal. Those of us that are older, before gas fires became purchasable, 
I remember having to plot out, are you with me? 11 hours in advance, how long it was going to take to get out of the charcoal to a degree that didn't either torch the thing or leave it as cold as it came out of the refrigerator. And so, and you remember the smell of a charcoal fire? I get, there's camp, like if I'm around a campfire, I'm reminded of a kid being at church camp, singing songs and, and being with my friends and experiencing what community felt like. It isn't amazing how smells and music and scenery and foods, don't they take you back to times and places when you were younger or a great experience or unfortunately sometimes they can take you back to a bad moment? Well, he tells us here in John 18 that Peter was standing around a charcoal fire the night that he denied Jesus. And they said, you know him. He said, I don't. You were with him. I was not. You're one of his. I'm not one of his and uses obscene language. And it's interesting that they come off the beach that day in John 21 and they appear before the fire where there's fish already. What kind of fire is it? It's only the second time in all the New Testament that charcoal fire is used in the scriptures. Jesus set a charcoal fire. He is doing what that lady did in the 15th Street Walmart. He's getting Peter's attention without words. And Peter stands before the smell of a charcoal fire and then Jesus begins to challenge him. Verse 15 of John 21. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time. Now, I don't know how much time's passed between these. I'm interested to know that, but I don't. He said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then tend my sheep. Jesus asked Peter a very clear, clear question here. Do you love me? But I think you notice, don't you, that even though the question is important, and it is, it's how many times he asked him. He, he threw himself on the ground, and he pounded his feet, and he squealed, and he made a big noise to remind the little boy Grandma did, this is what you're doing. So he brings him in front of the charcoal fire and the, the reminder of that moment where he denied him. Because you see, if you go back to Matthew chapter 26 on the night that this all happened, that Jesus was preparing the disciples, he said to them in the upper room, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. And Peter responded, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. In verse 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these Jesus is bringing Peter to a moment of awareness and it's brilliant in how he does it. Because Peter said, hey, it doesn't matter what anybody else does, I'm in. By my strength, by my power, by my decision, I am 100% in. And Jesus said, do you love me more than everybody? And Peter's response, Lord, you know I love you. He doesn't say yes. He does say, you know I love you. And Jesus has brought all of these things together. And the third time he asked the question, you know in your heart that Peter was like, he knows. He knows what I did. He knows that three times after he told me, three times before the rooster crows, Jesus knows I did three times. He's asking me three times do I love him. But I want you to notice, the question is, do you love me? Jesus does not ask him, are you sorry? Are you ashamed? He doesn't ask him, do you have any more bold promises you want to make, Peter? You see, for many of us, I think, our nature would be to push Peter down to get him to understand how low he is. Jesus doesn't do it. 
Jesus says, do you love me? Because Jesus is not asking him to make a promise. He's asking him, do you understand what I'm offering you? Peter, do you love me? Yeah, then take care of people. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, then take care of people. Peter, do you love me? Take care of people. He doesn't say fix yourself, punish yourself, walk away from me, try again. He simply says, care for people. And if Peter would ever want to know how to care for people, he's just seen it demonstrated, hasn't he? He just heard, oh, I'm going to love people like I was just loved. I'm going to forgive people like I was just forgiven. I'm going to offer people a second chance who blew the first chance on purpose. I love what he says in verse 17. You know all things. This is what Peter says to Jesus. You know. I know for some of us, prayer is one of those things that religious people do, right? The paid people like this guy. You know, they pay him to pray. Nope. They don't. And you can too. And for those of you that sit there going, when I try to pray to God after I've asked for certain things, I'm, it's about 30 seconds and then I feel stupid. Well, here's what you can do. It's going to probably make you feel more stupid. That's not my intention. But if you really want your prayer life to come to life, start telling God about your day and say, God, something happened this morning that I didn't act the way I was supposed to. I don't always understand why I don't act the way I'm supposed to. And other times you can say, God, I did something today I shouldn't have done. I know I shouldn't have done it and I did it anyway. What's wrong with me? If you really want to have a conversation with God, begin to process who you are in his presence. Like Peter falling on his knees before Jesus saying, I am a sinner. One of the healthiest things we can do is admit to God. I mean, don't just like mentally admit it. Say the words out loud. Father, I failed today. I keep failing. I keep walking away from your promises. I need your strength. I need your presence. I need your grace. And then all of a sudden it becomes less of talking to the ceiling. And it becomes an awareness of the presence of God in your daily life. Because when you and I say, I'm a sinner, discipleship begins. And Jesus is an expert at discipling us. But it begins with a confession. Because remember, Jesus isn't ignoring our sins. He wants to deal with it. And the way he deals with it is through his loving forgiveness on the cross. Through the reconciling blood of Jesus, he is able to take what is broken in you and fix it. But for some reason, in God's perfect economy... Confession begins discipleship because in his kindness, we repent. Peter says, you know all things. But every one of us in this room can relate to this, right? We've all had a moment when a sin you wish you could take back comes back on you. We all have that moment when you promised Jesus things would be different only to go right back to living the default life you fall into. When you knew you were supposed to obey, but you chose to disobey and it became public. Failure is never final because God's love never quits on us. Failure is only final when you and I quit on God. But it's never final in the eyes of Jesus. Why is Jesus so concerned to ask Peter, do you love me? Because love is the thing that recreates community when there's brokenness. Love is the only thing that prompts obedience after rebellion. Love is the only thing that motivates us in the midst of our fatigue. It is love that gets a mother out of bed in the middle of the night when she has to work the next day and she's had very little sleep because her child is sick. Love is what gets a father out of bed when he has to work the next day to go sit on his daughter's bedside in the middle of a thunderstorm when she's scared. Love is the only thing that will really get us to do what we don't want to do when we're tired and we're selfish and we're broken. Love propels us to our better versions of who we are. 
And Jesus is not saying to Peter, I want to see you repent. I want to see you broken. I want to see you grovel. Our Jesus simply says, I want you to love. And it's not a punishment for his sin. It's a reminder of how his sin was taken care of. Through the cross, we have this hope. Peter's failure is hanging in the air. And yet Jesus offers him rest. Jesus wasn't asking for promises. He was asking for a true response to grace. So what do we do with this? How do you and I look at this, not turn it into like mythology, but a real moment between a real man and a real God? Well, here's what we're called to do. When we will confess our sin, that we are sinners who need the grace of Jesus Christ, the cross shows us that he is able and willing to offer us that. And in our failure, what are we to do? We're to turn our attention off of ourselves and we're to love the way we were loved. Isn't that what the great command says? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And how do we learn to love? By the example of Jesus. Everything focuses back to him and shows us that he teaches us what grace looks like. So I'm gonna give you two ways and they're not that profound. I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm not embarrassed of it, but it's a simple blocking and tackling, if you will. You can play football and have all the fancy design plays you want, but if, if they aren't blocking and you can't tackle, you ain't winning. And in Christianity, it will come back to loving God and loving our neighbor. But if we look at it the way I want you to look at it today, you're going to see it's less of a burden and more of a natural response. So let's look. So how do we live beyond our failures? The way we love our fellow man. And the way we love our fellow man, notice that what did he give Peter to do? To love, to care for, to protect, to invite, to offer. It's more than just saving lost people by, by a convincing argument. No, it's actually inviting them into a love that they want. It's looking at the failure and saying your failure does not define you because God's love never quits on you. It's saying to the person who feels like they've done too much and gone too far to come home to simply say, no, your father sits on the balcony every day looking to the horizon for you to return. It's the message of love. John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. I'm sorry, that's 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I have to walk a very thin line here. Every fiber of my body is saying, leave it alone. But I can't because I think it needs said. My heart is breaking over how we're politicizing loving people. Like if I love these people, then I'm, I'm siding with them. No, no, no. If you love these people, you're siding with Jesus. Let the political nonsense be silent in the church. We should care for our enemies. Boom, discussion over. Maybe you find them enemies, or maybe you find them just people who, who have needs met, but Jesus said, it's a cold cup of water. It's visiting people in prison. We don't get to decide who needs to be loved. We just get to love. And we won't. We won't if the love of Jesus hasn't become real to us. And that begins by knowing we're sinners who were saved by an innocent man's blood on the cross that he did on purpose. And how we love, John would write in 1 John, you really can't say you love God if you hate people. Now, can we be real honest? Some people make it hard to love them. And when I'm behind the wheel of a car, oh my goodness. <laughs> but all joking aside, 
God is saying, when you have been loved by Jesus well, love will be your response. Even when it's hard, even in the middle of the night when it's inconvenient, even when you're tired or bored or angry, love must win. The second thing is the way we live a life controlled by love. Now that word controlled by love has bothered me since, but it was really, I don't say God told me to say that word, I've just searched and searched And when I see what the scriptures teach, I think this is it. It's controlled by love, but I don't mean a robot. The Apostle Paul will explain it in a moment, but listen to what happens. Jesus is going to give uh, Peter a glimpse of his future. And his future is not perfect. And his future is not actually safe. His future will end in crucifixion of some form. Church historians tell us that they believe that Peter was crucified, hung upside down because he refused to die the way Jesus died. He didn't feel honored enough to do, or he didn't feel like he should honor that, that he should be hung upside down. I don't know biblically if that's true. I like the poetry of it, so I live with it. But we know that Peter died a martyr one way or the other. He was killed for his faith. And Jesus is about to give Peter a glimpse of this. Look at verse 18. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Now John, writing this well after Peter's death, Write these words. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Isn't that good news? Peter wins. Peter wins because love changed him. And he, the man who ran away that night after lying and cursing three times, that man would stand before death, face it, and win. Then he said to him, Jesus said to him, follow me. Same words he said in Luke 5. Don't be afraid, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Peter turned and saw that John was following them. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? (laughs) Peter's still Peter. He and John are brothers, and they're going to compete all the way to the end. And Peter knows what Jesus just said, and he's like, I'm going to die for this? Is John going to die for this? Jesus answers, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Listen to these words, church. You must follow me. You must follow me. You must choose this. It doesn't matter if you're in a crowd. Each one of us must stand alone in loyalty to Jesus. Now, the crowd of the church and community of faith is necessary. It's not optional. Jesus didn't say, just follow me by yourself and leave everything. No, no, he said, we're going to do this. And he built the church. It's the bride of Christ. And together we strengthen each other. When one is slowing down, we speed him up. And when one is falling down, we lift him up. And when one is discouraged and troubled and has questions, we stop, we answer the questions, and we journey together. This is what we're called to be. Not isolated from the world, but going through the world together, inviting other people to join. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, care for my people, Jesus said. But each one of us must choose on our own to follow him. You're not going to get in to to the the new kingdom based on what miniature version of the kingdom you attended on Sundays. God's not going to ask whether you were Baptist or Methodist or Catholic or anything else, what church you attended, was it a good church, did they do it right? He's not going to ask us any of that. He's going to say, did you take the blood of Jesus and love him for it? And our answer will be what, church? Yes, we did. We weren't great at it, but your kindness led us to it. You see, Paul would tell the church in Corinth, which was a jacked-up church, he said this, the love of Christ controls us. Some of your versions say compels us. And I don't mean that God is telling us to go love people, to, to pay off 
what we should have been punished for. This is not like get even, okay? Because you follow me now, you're going to have to do these things. No, no. He's saying, no, when you understand what I've done for you, you will love people. And one of the acid tests of understanding the grace of Jesus is to see how smoothly he walked Peter through this moment of reconciliation. No shame, no anger, no punishment. Invitation. Come home. Peter, are you going to follow me? I asked you in Luke 5, would you follow me? And you did, and then you stopped. Will you follow me now? Peter, it doesn't matter what anybody else does. You must follow me. And Jesus offers that call to each and every one of us today. Now, maybe you're here today and you've never had a moment where you have said, I am choosing publicly to follow Jesus. I'm not, not going to think it in my head. I'm going to try this week and see if it works. No, no, no. The only way you can follow Jesus is to get up and follow Jesus, not think about it. Talk about it and study it. Do it. Around this room are four tables with lamps lit, and people are going to go to these tables right now to meet with you there. Maybe, maybe today is the first day that you make a public profession that I want to follow Jesus Christ, and by his authority, I'll follow him. By his goodness, I will love and live. You see, because if you and I do good things to get heaven, as if that's a thing, or if you and I do good things so people think well of us, or if we do good things because we feel bad about what we used to do, that is not, that is not what we're called to be. That's self-righteousness. We surrender everything to love Jesus. That's what we're called to do. And Jesus is so good at discipling us because of his love. Because he loved us first, we love him. Maybe this morning, God has laid something on your heart. He asked the question three times with Peter, and I'd like him to be able to ask you the question three times this morning. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And maybe your response to Jesus this morning is, Lord, you know I do. Or, Lord, I want to, but I don't know how. Or, Lord, I'm struggling. I don't love you like you deserve to be loved. It's no shame in this room. Just listen to the offer. You can follow me. What we'd like to do is give you just a bit of privacy and silence in this big room this morning. And we're just going to sit for the next 20 to 30 seconds. I want you to listen to the question of Jesus, do you love me? And begin a conversation with him about how you want to respond. And leave here today celebrating that Jesus Christ is giving us the offer of a lifetime. He's so good at discipling us. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.